Don't mean to scare you, but the real issue at hand for today, I shared this in our prayer time this morning, um, this might be a long message. <laughs> we got a lot of ground to cover. And when Stephen asked me this morning, okay, so what text are we going to be using? I said, that's kind of an interesting question because I'm going to be using a lot of them. And so if you have your Bibles open, I pray that you just get ready to use them. Um, not every text is going to appear on the screen because what we are going to be looking at today as we prepare to celebrate next week as resurrection morning, what we are going to be looking at today are a number of texts that point to and describe God's ultimate plan or purpose through sending Jesus Christ to this world so that he might die in our place for our sins. And that's why it's good for us to realize that the Bible doesn't just give us one small section about this, but God speaks about this. The cross of Jesus Christ comes by no means as a surprise to anyone. And if you don't believe me, it will not appear on the screen, but let me read to you from Psalm 22, written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus Christ crawls upon the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? I am but a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by all the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him, you, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Psalm 22 continues. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like, like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Dogs encompass me. A, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. Psalm 22. And yet when I read that psalm, I think about the death of Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 53. Written hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus Christ. God gives an amazing preview of coming attractions when he writes this through the prophet Isaiah he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the sin that brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for, as for his generation, who considered that he would be cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he did no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth. How do you not read those texts and go, okay, that's Jesus? 
How do you not read those texts and go, how did David know? How did Isaiah know? And the truth is, they didn't fully know, but God did. And so he spoke those words through his prophets so that when Jesus is on the cross, Good Friday comes up. We call it Good Friday. Think about that for a moment. Good Friday. Well, what is that day? Oh, it's a very important day in the Christian calendar. Well, what is it? Well, it's the, it's the day that our Savior was murdered. Okay, what, what did you call it? Good Friday? Okay, wait a second. So the day that your Savior was killed, you label that Good Friday. And the answer is what? Yes. And I'm telling you, it's rightly named. That's not a mistake. I don't want to vote on whether or not we should get rid of that and called Really Bad Friday. No. So then how does that match up? Last week we talked about this statement, that in the triumphal entry, when Jesus enters into the city and they cried out, Hosanna, praise God and his Messiah. We are saved. They had no idea what they were saying, and they didn't. They did not fully understand the words that they said. And now what I want to do today is I want us to walk through those final moments of Jesus' death because when we gather again next Sunday, it's going to be Resurrection Sunday. We're not planning on gathering on Friday to go through and to let's kind of just think through the death of Jesus Christ. So we're doing that today. So that next Sunday you understand that what was raised from the dead and the celebration that we have is the fact that Jesus Christ was in fact God and that Jesus Christ did follow God's plan for him and that Jesus Christ was killed and did die. And God raised a very real but dead son from the grave to give a punctuation, an exclamation to what Jesus Christ said about himself, which is that my life and my death will bring you peace and will bring you salvation and will bring you hope. But that Good Friday moment, between the Passover and Resurrection Sunday, it's dark. I wanna just kind of walk through kind of the major players. You see it in your bulletin. First of all, you just can't get around this fact. Judas, and he's mentioned a number of times in the Gospels, and every time the name Judas is mentioned, these two things are mentioned with him. Judas, one of the 12, who was with him from the beginning, who also betrayed him. Notice that. Judas, who was with him from the beginning, who was one of the 12, just think about that. He was one of the 12. And Judas betrays him. If you have your Bibles, we're in Luke 22 looking at this text. Luke chapter 22, verses three through six. And by the way, I'm not even gonna begin to answer all the questions that are racing through your minds. Okay, I don't get it. So then, how does all of this fit into God's sovereign plan? I can't answer all of those questions, and I'm not just saying in the next 30 minutes. Okay, 42 minutes. I'm not saying I can do it in today's time allotment. I'm saying I'll never be able to fully understand how God's sovereign plan for all of this was brought about. But I do believe that God is sovereign. And Jesus Christ, as he is selecting the disciples and as he fully understands why he came, says, Judas, I choose you. And Judas was one of the 12. And Judas was one of those disciples who was sent out to do miracles. 
and I have to believe he did them. If not, it would have looked a little more normal. Hey, did any of you guys notice, like, nothing's working with Judas? Remember that time? Yeah, Bartholomew would say, I was with Judas one time, and I was doing some really cool stuff, and everything that Judas was doing, nothing was happening. No one was getting healed. Nobody was getting, uh, you know, the demons weren't coming, nothing. I mean, I don't know if that guy's one of us. No, because on the night that he's betrayed and Jesus points out that there will be betrayal, they all go, I wonder who it is. They're not going, well, it's Judas. He's always complaining, right? It's Judas. Can't you tell he's not one? I, I think about that. Judas, one of the 12, who later betrayed him. Jesus chose him, prayed for him, I'm sure, And Judas betrayed him, verse three of Luke 22. And then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the 12. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers on how he might betray him. One of those closest to him, one of those who followed him, one who saw all the miracles, one who, as I said, performed miracles, and and yet for a small amount of money betrays him. Verse five, and they were glad and they agreed to give him money and so he consented and then, I love this, and then sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. So this is what's happening. They enter into the city and the crowd is excited about seeing him and Judas somehow in the middle of all of this decides I want to betray him and I'm going to do it for this sum of money and he conspires and he meets and Jesus knows all of this and this is part of God's plan Judas betrays him and so the picture that I want you to think about this week of Jesus is one who was faithful and one who was right and one who spoke truth and yet By Judas, he was betrayed with a kiss. That's one of the things that Jesus says when the final encounter happens. He says, like, with a kiss, Judas? It's dark. How are we going to know which one's him? It's not like television. Well, you'll know. He's the one on CNN all the time. How are we going to know which one's Jesus? I'll explain it. I'll give him a kiss. And that will give him away. And Judas leans in. And out of this noble act, this kind gesture, he betrays Jesus. But that's not it. There's more that is actually happening. There are more players than just Judas and the disciples. There actually is something known as the Sanhedrin or the religious leaders. Known as the 70. These are the ones, um, relatively self-appointed, but they're the ones who, I have to believe, were zealous because they were convinced they were right. They'd studied the word of God. They had cared deeply to know what the word of God said. And they think that what they're doing is in defense of God. Like I know right now it's not very cool to think of somebody who is a religious zealot, right? One of the worst things you can be today is overly religious, right? No matter what you are. I just say, man, they're overly religious. And you're like, oh, that's, that's like one of the worst things a person could possibly be step back into time and that's not the case. 
These people were respected. These people were just naturally the leaders because they were the ones that knew what God wanted and they are the ones that are attempting to accomplish God's purposes. They're pouring over the Old Testament scriptures and they look at Jesus of Nazareth and they conclude this. Although he does miracles, he's got to go. Now the chief priests understand this and even when you all, whenever you say the phrase, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, you realize these weren't groups that liked each other. The Pharisees were uh, the, kind of the religious elite that managed the synagogue and cared for the people. The Sadducees were more of the, um, the priestly leaders that did all of the functionings that happened in the temple. Not in the synagogues around the town, around the nation, but actually in the temple. And the two of them disagreed on a lot of doctrinal issues, but on Jesus they agreed. He's got to go. But the crowds like him, so how do we get rid of him? Like, how, how do we undermine this? How do we find him guilty when I don't know what he's guilty of? And I can't even imagine, and they basically, essentially, trump up charges. They hold a trial at night, which was against Jewish law. And they send in false witnesses to come in and to provide this kind of testimony to get Jesus to be considered guilty, even though he is innocent. Mark chapter 14. By the way, just in case you don't know this, let me just remind you, every one of the Gospels right near the end tells similar stories describing the last few days and week of Jesus' life. We were in Luke, now I want to turn down to Mark 14, beginning in verse 55. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. See, he was already determined guilty. Now their question is, how do we get everyone else to consider him to be what we think he is, which is guilty? It's not, is he guilty? We should find out. We should seek testimony to determine whether or not he is or is not guilty. No, he's guilty. And you know what he's guilty of? Just so we're all clear. He is guilty of claiming to be God, which in their thinking is blasphemy. To claim to be God and he's a human, those things don't fit together. And I think it's good for us to remember that still many people in the world have a hard time believing that that is the case. Whenever I have an opportunity to share the truth about Jesus Christ, both with people of no faith or with those people who've got a kind of a, some level of a church background or those that have another religious background, Buddhist or Muslim, and I begin to describe Jesus Christ who was in fact God in flesh, which is a Christian doctrine, it just blows their minds. Do you mean like he was like a really good guy that he knew his godness within him? No, I mean he was in fact God. Okay, I don't know how that happens. And my answer is, I don't know either. It's what he claimed. And it's what they couldn't deal with. And so notice what happens in verse 50, or let me, let me just kind of continue this. So they're seeking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Verse 56 for many bore false witness. And it's good for us to see that picture here. Judas, a close one, betrays him. The Sanhedrin tries him 
with false witnesses. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this testimony, they did not agree. By the way, Jesus did make statements about the temple coming down. He was talking about his own body. They're taking everything they can, the statements that he makes, and they're trying to twist them and turn them so that they can find him guilty, so that they can kill him because they already believe he's guilty. And this is how they treat Jesus, who's been spending his time loving and caring and providing. And their answer is, you don't fit in our religious box. And so the Sanhedrin tries him, and he is found guilty without the truth. Tried, but there is no truth. The Gospels make it very, very clear, the accusations made against Jesus, that he wanted to tear down, the, they're, they're accusing him of wanting to tear down the temple, literally. They're accusing him of wanting to do away with the law, things which Jesus never agreed to, things that Jesus never said. But the only way they could get him to be considered guilty is by lying. Now, those things hurt, but this one is even more. Jesus is also abandoned by his disciples, his disciples, the, the rest of the 12. They don't betray him, but they do abandon him. Peter, and, and we take shots at him, and I think Peter's going to be really mad in heaven at all of those of us that describe Peter as this guy that's always kind of running off at the mouth, that always, always kind of overstating things like he's the only one. Anybody here ever overstated their commitment? Right? Peter takes a hit on this all the time. But Peter does, actually. Peter makes that statement. God, you're Jesus. I'm, who is God? Jesus, I, I, I promise you, I'll, even though everybody else leaves you, I will never leave you. I would never deny you. Even if it means to death, I will never deny you. And Jesus points out, like, yes, you will. Matthew chapter 26. See, this is, I think, one of the reasons why the Bible keeps giving us these statements of from Jesus Christ, whether it's Psalm or Isaiah, or whether it's Jesus, even to the disciples earlier in his ministry, let me tell you where this road leads. And numerous times, in the Gospels, Jesus says to the disciples, before the cross literally appears, I am going to die. I'm going to Jerusalem so that I might die, and I will be betrayed, and I will be handed over, and I will die, and on the third day I will rise again. And when, when it's not happening, they're going, I don't get what he's saying. Like, I don't understand this. And it's not just the death of Jesus, but even the abandonment of Jesus is described. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 55. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? So here is Jesus at that moment of betrayal. Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place. This is Jesus speaking. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples left him and fled. And Jesus Christ, at that moment of greatest need, 
I, listen, I get it. Like, I know that later on, Peter can say, well, you know what? On the day of Pentecost, I was the one. I was the one that stood there and preached that great sermon. John could stand up and say, hey, you know what? I was the one, the last one to live. I was the one that wrote the great revelation. Look at all that I, every one of them has amazing stories of redemption. But when you ask the question, so which ones of you left Jesus at that moment when he needed you the most, they all raised their hands. And Jesus goes through all of what he went through alone so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus Christ, abandoned by his closest followers. Now, this one here is, I guess, to be expected. There are those, I guess, in life that are just doing what they were told to do. Judas hurts, right, because he was one of the 12. The Sanhedrin, ah, we can kind of expect it because they've got vested interest against Jesus. The disciples, now that one really hurts, but the soldiers, we might look at them and say, well, listen, I mean, they were, they were Roman, they weren't even Jewish, they didn't fully understand what was happening, but the Roman soldiers are part of this encounter, part of the story um, probably the most difficult thing to watch. How many of you have seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, right? Easily the most difficult thing to watch, right, was the torturing of Jesus. And let me tell you, for those of you that might think, ah, that overdid it a little bit. No, it really didn't. I'm, I'm, I guess maybe even I'm grateful. I don't even know how Hollywood would be able to really produce what a genuine or real scourging is what it was called, or a flogging by professional executioners, the Roman uh, soldiers, would have actually like produced. By far and away the majority of, of, of prisoners who were going to be crucified, who were technically flogged or scourged, the, by far and away the majority of them never made it to the crucifixion. They bled out right there. And these soldiers torture him. John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Some actually believe that the reason why Pilate did this was to maybe get the, the, the group of Jews who are wanting to get rid of him, that maybe if they see him really tortured, maybe if they see him really broken, then they'll dial it back. I mean, Pilate's in a tough spot. He's got the crowds who like him, or at least in the past have. He doesn't fully understand what is the problem. Why do you want this guy killed? And here he is thinking to himself that maybe if I flog him, maybe if I scourge him, maybe if I do something to kind of expose him or show him as vulnerable, maybe they'll just let go of this desire to have him killed. Pilate took Jesus and flogged him and the soldiers twisted together after flogging him a crown of thorns, if they only knew, and they put it on his head and they arrayed him in a purple robe, which was one of majesty. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him. The word there is not a slap. It's a pretty fierce hit. And they struck him with their hands. And I thought one of the things that um, most movies that try to depict the, the beating of Jesus Christ is just the, the humiliation of it. Paul says in Philippians chapter two, 
He describes this, the humility of Jesus. Whenever I hear the word, the humility of Jesus, I just think of humble, right? Just this, oh, that, he's so humble. But one word I, humble I like, right? How many of you like the word humble? It's a beautiful word, isn't it? How many of you like the word humiliated? See, that one hurts. But you know they're connected, right? Like the humility of Jesus is seen in his willingness to be humiliated, barely dressed, beaten. Like you do know he was king, right? And they give him a crown of thorns and they press it deep into his scalp. And they give him a robe and, and, and they're, they're making fun of him and they're laughing at him. It's a little bit more than just we should do this. They seem to enjoy it, don't they? I doubt if Pilate said, hey, by the way, make sure that you twist together some thorns and put it on his head. Hey, make sure that you have a purple robe when you put it on his back. No, no, no. That's the soldiers not just following orders but enjoying what they get to do. (laughs) After all, what's this guy gonna do, right? He is completely at our mercy. And so Jesus at the hands of the soldiers, finds himself tortured and mocked. The crowds, they reject him. So Jesus returns, now beaten, barely alive. Jesus returns crown, Jesus returns robe, and now Pilate's trying to, it appears to be trying to get Jesus off this. It seems like he doesn't want to do it in part because his wife has had a, a terrible dream in regards to this man, Jesus, and his innocence. Turn back to Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. I really do encourage you this week to pick even just one of the Gospels or all of the Gospels and just read the final week of Jesus. See how this all pieces together? In Luke chapter 23, verse 18. Uh, so you're at, you're at this area where the Romans are kind of sitting in charge and there is this open area where there's this, 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 this trial that is happening. I still remember just a couple of years ago being on the stones where that took place and it's just one of those moments where you just have to kind of get down on your knees, you know? So this is where it was? Where I was literally um, sitting on my, uh, on my hands and knees, uh, there was just, on the other side, there was this pillar, and on the other side of that pillar, the Roman soldiers had etched in a game, into the stone, a, a game that was played to decide who gets to kill him. And so Jesus is standing there, humiliated, and the Jewish leaders are not appeased. And so now all of a sudden Pilate decides, well, we've got this custom, and so you've heard of the name Barabbas. We've got this custom where I will let someone go, and there is this terrible person, a revolutionary, a a convicted murderer, or Jesus, the one who healed you, the one who provides for you. But as the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders stir up the crowds, verse 18 of Luke 23 records this. But they all cried out together, away with this man, speaking of Jesus, and release to us Barabbas, 
If, if you ever think that just a large group of people can vote and get it right, this is the one that always makes me go, yeah, I don't know if that's true. Like, I don't know if just asking people their opinion is the way to determine truth. They voted for Barabbas. Release to us Barabbas, verse 19. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they just kept out shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time, this is Pilate, he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he would be crucified, and their voices prevailed. And so Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked but he delivered, I love this, he delivered Jesus over to their will. They wanted Jesus dead. Rejected as Messiah. I mean, I just, I just the, the thought of that, that it was Jesus or Barabbas, and Barabbas wins by a landslide. Jesus finds himself rejected for a murderer. The one who brings life. His life is, in fact, traded and forfeited for someone who takes it. And this is the crowd's request. Pilate obviously had something to do with this. Ultimately, Pilate condemns him. John 19, verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. John 19, verses 15 and 16, and they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, shall I, shall I crucify your king? And then the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he, meaning Pilate, delivered him over to be crucified. Pilate is not innocent in this. Now, it's different. The religious leaders want to get rid of Jesus so they can keep what they had, control. And Pilate's no better. That when push came to shove, Pilate had to realize, like, even though he's innocent, and even though I just don't feel good about this, I guess it's better that he dies than I do. I, I guess it's better that he dies than this place just erupts. If I have to choose, because, and you can hear the accusations, right? We have no king but Caesar. Anybody who claims to be king opposes Caesar. See, Pilate will be considered a traitor if he doesn't go through with their wishes. And so Pilate condemns him out of expediency. And as he is walking through this, I want you to, he has no idea what he's doing. That's why I love some of my favorite conversations in the Bible are between Jesus and Pilate. Where Pilate is frustrated and mad at Jesus for not wanting to help him as Pilate's trying to get him out He's kind of frustrated that Jesus isn't helping him in the process. And what does he say to him? Do you not know that I have the power? I have the power to release you. And what does Jesus say to him? You have no power given to you other than what God has given to you. 
It's, it's amazing that all through this encounter, from Judas to the Sanhedrin, to the disciples, to the soldiers, to Pilate, everyone else other than Jesus seems like they're the ones in control. So it's like Jesus stumbles into the garden. And he just wasn't aware that Judas was coming, that Jesus stumbles into this trial and just, you know, is caught off guard and doesn't know how to issue like a, a, a good defense, that Jesus stumbles into this um, soldiers who are much stronger and more many than he is, that he's in this confrontation with Pilate and if he could just figure out how to just gather his wits that he could defend himself, that and all through this, Jesus is actually the one completely in control. You need to know that. The, the, the biggest part of the whole Easter experience that you need to remember is all of this happens under the divine guidance and direction of God. Through Pilate's words, Jesus is condemned, although he is innocent. So when you look at all of the people and all that they did, and they had no idea what they were doing. Here's what's interesting. There was only one person in the entire final days of Jesus Christ that knew what they were doing. And who was it? It was Jesus. Like he knew. He knew where to be. He knew where to go. He knew when to speak and when not to speak. Like he understood um, the temptation of him, Jesus' temptation is, is now coming to its final encounter. Jesus is in the garden the night before, take this cup from me. I, I don't, God, if there's another way, I want there to be another way. But then he finishes his prayer with, but not my will, but your will be done. And so although it is very true that the gospels describe Jesus as wanting another way out, and I think it's primarily because he does not want to embrace the wrath of God upon him. More than a thorn of crowns, a crown of thorns, Jesus did not know sin, was about to become sin. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about. Even when he says, take this cup for me, the word that is used there is the same word that describes the punishment that God pours out upon those who sin against him. Take this cup from me, your wrath that will be poured out. Take that from me. But then he prays. This is why Jesus' model of his prayer is so important for us to, but not my will, but your will be done in my life. So even though everybody else seems to be in control, they're not. And even though you have people who are rejecting and condemning and denying and betraying and torturing, Jesus died for them. He died for them. Dead for all of them. He died so that they might have life. Here's how one person says it. This is kind of interesting. In Acts chapter 3, the apostle Peter says it this way. I thought it was kind of interesting that Peter, just shortly after the resurrection of Jesus, would be this I, I call it gracious, but it also has to be true. When Peter is describing what the Jewish people did to Jesus Christ, he describes them as just being ignorant of what they were doing. Acts chapter two, beginning in verse 17, says this. 
Peter speaking. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that his Christ, word is Messiah, would suffer, he also fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing might come in the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah appointed to you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. What you did in ignorance, God did to redeem you. Therefore, repent and believe. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, Yet among the mature we impart wisdom, although it is not the kind of wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart, listen to this, a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, because if they would have understood it, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. What Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 2 is the plan of God for our redemption is nothing that you or I or the smartest of us could ever have figured out. We could never have added up the scenario, and it equaled God dying for us. That is why God's grace is so amazing. That's where God's grace ultimately leads us, is to the cross. By the way, Paul quotes this from the book of Isaiah. What no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart of man has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And that's not some generic statement about how big God is. That's a specific statement that God's great plan always involved the death of his son for our salvation. Isn't that amazing? That out of ignorance, that out of rebellion, that out of selfishness, because it's easy for me to point at Judas the betrayer, disciples the rejectors, right? It's easy for me to point at them, the soldiers, what they did. But when you stand back and you look at this, you realize that we're all guilty. We're all guilty. And, and do you understand that, like those people that were involved in the death of Jesus Christ, sure, they were guilty. And even though the Bible says, Peter says, you acted in ignorance, they still needed to repent. Because even if God excused them of the specific sins involved in killing Jesus, they still needed a savior for all of the other messes in their lives. See, what Easter is about is just how desperately every one of us needs Jesus to die for us. Because no good that we do no righteousness that we want to pretend that we have is enough for the king of glory. And the only thing that satisfies God, the only thing that keeps him just and holy and righteous is a perfect sacrifice. And Jesus is the one who willingly gives himself. So I'm standing in a Hindu temple one day. I'm with some kids um, that I've been kind of leading on this tour, and we're standing in front of one of the many gods that exist in this Buddhist temple. And as I'm standing there looking at this one god, a man comes up to me, and I guess he knows maybe by just my appearance that I'm not a Hindu. 
And he says, isn't this place beautiful? And I'm not kidding. It was one of the most amazing places I've ever been in. Just amazing how it was the architecture. I mean, it was just this white, white room. It was beautiful. Isn't this beautiful? It's, it's, the architecture's amazing. I'll give you that. It's amazing. And then he starts in. You know what I like about this place is? It gets, it's beauty and it doesn't have some like horrific cross on it. That we don't, we don't gather around and celebrate and sing songs about blood, which we did today. Like we're not here to celebrate a twisted person who dies on a cross for us. Just look at all of this beauty. And, and I had to just stop for a moment and realize, yeah, we are weird. <laughs> like that is strange, isn't it? Like it is strange what we worship. I just so happened to be standing in front of one of the Hindu gods that was actually recognized for their extreme sacrifice. And I said to him, was, it, was this a person or was this a god? And it was just a person. And tell me what they did. Oh, he gave his life out of this love that he had for this woman. And I said, is that, is that cool? Is that, that, is that really awesome? And he said, yeah. And I said, wow, okay. I can think of lots of examples of people who die for other people. Um, let me tell you about Jesus. And I just began to preach Jesus. You want to know a real sacrifice, not just another person dying for another person, but God coming in human flesh. And I'd love to say that right then he said, baptize me. But he didn't. I have no idea where that led. But I'm really grateful for that moment in which I was able to realize, yeah, like as followers of Jesus Christ, we do some strange things. We celebrate regularly. The death of Jesus Christ. Why? Because without it, we have no peace with God. It's easier for me to look at these people in this story and say they have no idea what they were doing, and I just love to be reminded, but what's our excuse? This is why what I would like us to do is to end with communion. So for those who are going to be serving us, why don't you head back? As we close this morning, the men are going to go out. They're going to come back. They're going to hand out the trays, and you are going to hold in your hand two emblems that signify this. Um, there was a book written a number of years ago that he, he began to describe this. He said, as Christians, I'm deeply concerned that we focus so much on the death of Jesus I think we focus too much on the death of Jesus. Back in the 1950s, um, one of the Bible translations decided to remove a lot of the blood-type language because it was kind of, you know, just over the top. Um, kids might read this. It was known as the bloodless Bible. I get it. I totally get that it's weird. I totally get that it's complicated and difficult and painful for us. Just take the cup and the bread and hold it. Thank you, brother. I, I want to make sure that we do this right. I want to make sure that as I sit here and expose the failure of people in the past for doing something they did not understand, betraying Jesus, falsely trying Jesus, torturing 
Jesus, abandoning Jesus, condemning Jesus, that in light of the fact that all of that was done so that we might all find salvation, I'd, I'd hate to think, I, I, I can think of a lot of reasons why each of those guys have an excuse. I don't think we have one. Like we have no excuse. We know what Jesus Christ has done. We know who he is. We know the, I'm not trying to pretend. For like for those of you that don't know what happens after Jesus dies, I'll tell you now, you don't even have to come back. I don't even want you to wait. God raises him from the dead, giving proof of everything that he said was true and that his life really did change everything. His death really did change everything. God gives proof of this and that is why you and I celebrate this every week. I just don't want us, I really don't want us to be guilty of going through the motions of something that matters eternally. Now, now by the way, I, I say this every year when we talk about this, maybe every time I preach when we talk about this, Jesus did not die a brutal death so that you would feel sorry for him. Jesus didn't die the most painful possible death so that you might feel sorry for him. No, Jesus was actually crucified because that's what Romans did. And that's when he lived. It's not how he died that is the significance. It's that he died for you and me. The significance of his death. So please, what Jesus does not need is your sympathy. But what Jesus asks for and deserves is our devotion and our loyalty, does he not? Not just because of how he died, but because of why he died, so that you and I might have life. I'm, I'm grateful, and I think God planned it this way, that we had an example, a young girl named Giselle this morning, and a young boy named Parker, next service, who give their lives to Jesus Christ. What an incredible picture of a life surrendered to Jesus. See, Jesus didn't die for no apparent reason. He died for a very real reason. And Giselle gave up her life today to give it to Jesus for a very real reason. And for those of you that have put your hope in Jesus Christ, your faith is not in vain. Jesus is the plan of God. Take his body and eat it in celebration together. And take the cup and drink it in celebration together. God, we thank you for what you've done that we could have never figured out on our own. God, we don't have just a great story. We have an amazing story that is true. Thank you for sending Jesus, who in no way is a victim but in every way is a savior. Father, remove the empty sentimentality from our hearts and replace it with worship and abandon and devotion. God, we thank you for Jesus. 
and the hope and the peace that we have in him. We thank you for him. That we actually literally sit here right now not guilty because of what Jesus Christ did for us. Therefore, replace all of our guilt and shame with gratitude and gratefulness to be your children, to be your people, to be redeemed, and not because we deserve it, but because you are amazing. Thank you for grace. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. As you know, we would love to continue this faith conversation. There will be people down front that would love to continue to talk about this. Spend time. Here's my challenge. Spend time this next week talking with those you love about why Jesus died. Just don't show up next Sunday looking all cute and special. And by the way, we're going to have three services, 8 o'clock, 9.30, and 11.10. That 9.30 one's going to be crazy. I'm just telling you now. It's going to be really, really full. But... Don't come without recognizing what Jesus Christ has already done for you. He died for you. One last announcement I want to make, and you probably see it in your thing. For those of you that are interested in the adoption or in the foster parent side of things, there's some really important information that we want you to be aware of. We love you guys. Have a blessed week, and we will see you on Sunday.